From the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Thanks for listening to the show on your Indiana Public Broadcasting station this month. If you've ever liked to get a question on the show, email that to ask at wbaa.org, and you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Uh, I want to start out with a, a listener question that came in. We've just had move in for a lot of the students, and the listener writes in and talks about some of these big high-rises that are being built near campus. The first thing they wanted to know, which I think I can answer, is are they campus buildings, are they not? No, these are private investment. The university doesn't own them. However, there are quite a number of students that are going to live in these 2,500 or 3,000 beds that are being built near campus. And so the listener also wanted to know about If there's a case like what recently happened at one of them where students couldn't move in on time, what sort of accommodations or dispensation does the university think about in those cases? Uh, Because obviously you've talked a lot on this program and elsewhere about wanting students to live near to campus as possible so that they can be a part of campus life in every way. And obviously these aren't on campus, but within walking distance of most classes. So um, is there anything the university uh, can or would do in a case like that? First thing I'd say is, uh, we're we're glad the the people have made these investments. You're right; it it will give more options to students, a wider range of choices, and a lot. And they they are they are very close to campus. Um, we've had forever at Purdue, I guess, lots of our students living sometimes at a distance, and sometimes in in housing that uh, I can speak here as a former parent. You know, not that attractive, maybe not even that safe. So I think the idea that um, a new investment right on the edge of campus has been attracted is, is a good thing. Um, it was, uh, I, d- I did hear about the fact that uh, they weren't ready for at least uh, some students. Uh, I can't say for sure uh, that we uh, were able to solve those problems or how much help you were, but we deal with this ourselves every year. There are always uh, little things that come up. We were pretty uh, pleased this year. I, I uh, only about 60 people were in temporary housing. That's probably a low for recent years, and we're getting it solved pretty fast. And I guess the same folks who work on those problems, which can arise in our own residence halls um, or our own spaces, uh, would have tried to help in, in these cases at the hub. I hope they're uh, I hope they're being resolved quickly. Do you have any sense? I was going to ask you about the the on campus housing. Uh, we've talked about this in in past years on this program, and it's been you know 100 to 120 students uh, about there the last couple of years. Good to hear that it's down. Obviously, that's better for the students. Uh, in terms of other ways that the universities tried to compensate for that, like paying to rent apartments on the university's dime and then having students effectively reimburse that rental rate to the university. Are you still in the the local rental game as much as you have been in recent years? No, much, much less so. And it uh, and I and and not with regard to freshmen, which was which happened a couple years ago once when we got surprised by a huge class. So you, you'll remember that. Um, once again, the uh, uh, this new and this new this private investment uh, has has uh, alleviated that problem. In fact, we're going to be watching. Everyone's going to be watching now for a year or so to see where the supply and demand um, equation has has settled. Uh, do we have? Do we still need more um, uh, spaces? Does the market still demand more, or uh, perhaps are we a little ahead of of the uh, curve? But as uh, my latest information 
uh, even though there were, what, three or four new buildings that came online pretty much contemporaneously, um, most of them rented up um, close to full. And I have definitely heard from other places that uh, demand is still to be met out there, and uh, the the near-campus rental rate is still upper 90s percentile. So it yeah. does sound like there could be more of that in the offing. Well, once again, if it if part of this means that fewer students um, uh, go to some of the older housing um, on the edge of campus or not too far from campus, um, I've heard many, many times some of the neighborhoods there would be happy about that. They That this has not always been the, uh, the most positive thing for the neighborhood the and town and gown struggles we hear about a little bit of that and and uh, meanwhile the the newer um, accommodations that you're asking about probably are uh, closer cleaner safer better for the students if uh, if it meets their budget on to something else uh, you unfortunately were the the target of an email scam recently tell us about that you know, there's there so many of these things. They don't always, they don't generally involve me, but directly. But uh, that uh, I, I had to go back and refresh my memory a little bit. It, it is astonishing how many uh, so-called phishing or other um, hacking attempts are made. Um, I always wonder who are these people who have nothing to do but try to hack into somebody's uh, business or university or public sector, uh, a governmental database, but. Um, uh, yeah, I bet I get, I bet I spot one a week. And that's targeted I, at you? No, no, just in general. Oh, something that's obviously fishy with a pH, okay. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and I just routinely forward it, uh, and we, uh, somebody examines it in a safe way. It's, it's almost always phony, and we put a block in of some kind. So this one did, uh, uh, I'm reminded, um. Uh, it tried to entice me that I needed to change a direct deposit. Uh, um, I guess my pay I, I, is direct deposited to the bank I use, and this suggested that needed to be uh, recoded or something, rerouted. And even I was uh, smart enough to detect that one. And so, uh, yeah, I just sent it in as I usually do. Sure enough, it's uh, uh, it's a blatant. Uh, um, attempt to get inside or even, in this case, maybe directly pilfer a little money. Do you have any sense who was responsible for this? Are you looking into it at all? Uh, no, our, our folks, I don't know if our folks even try to trace these things. There's, again, there are so many of them. I mean, our main our main goal, is, and every big organization I know does the same, is to train people, don't fall for these. They're always trying to get just one person to click or respond and so they can get inside the system. And so our our big emphasis has been on training and try to get people uh, to be alert to this, uh, to turn them in when they get them, and then, to, you know, try to constantly improve our defenses. But, uh, yeah, this was just the latest of uh, constant stream. Did you have any sense that that you were a particular target of this, that you were targeted because you are who you are? I, no. I, my, my, well, my guess is they, uh, my name's visible out there, so they were able to, it was not, I think they even uh, guessed wrong on my uh, email or something. I, I think I remember spotting some obvious uh, 
defect in what they sent. But uh, no, probably uh, if they get a name for it could be one of our uh, professors or uh, uh, some uh, uh, high other uh, important official at Purdue, um, they might have they might have tried them too. I don't know. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. You can email your questions to ask at wbaa.org, and you can find archived versions of this show at wbaa.org. I had a couple questions about a couple of recent uh, Washington Post editorials that you wrote. One of them, interestingly, was about the declining number of uh, political and editorial cartoonists employed by U.S. newspapers. Why call attention to that in your current role as a university president? I just thought, you know, in, I write those columns. Uh, uh, I was invited to, and and I I look I try to look for things that aren't being written about by eight other people every day. So I stay away from partisan politics, and I stay away from you know hot button issues. There are enough people closer to them to to deal with those. Um, so uh, to me, uh, what I was really writing about here is something that has troubled me a long time, and that's the decline of print journalism generally, which I don't think that um, modern digital media have uh, have uh, fully re- replaced. I, I think you and I have talked about it before, that uh, when you had flinty-eyed newspaper editors, they would challenge a story before it got into the paper. Who You got two sources for that? How about three? You know, Are you sure? Uh, check this fact. Check that fact. There seems to be very little of that going on anymore. Even the New York Times has reduced its editorial staff in recent years. Well, and, and then, yes, and then there's just the just the uh, the shrinkage in the in the number of people who actually have any historical knowledge any uh, 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 who are really uh, savvy about these things i think it's a very troubling problem and uh, newspapers uh, for all their defects had corrections columns if they made a mistake they the next day you you'd learn about that mistake and um, so anyway uh, as the number of newspapers and the size of papers uh, has evaporated. They took political cartooning with them. Uh, what got me to write it was the long time, I thought, fantastic talent at the Indianapolis Star and his and a syndicate, Gary Varvel, announced his retirement. And I used that as a point of departure, really, to just to uh, reflect on this uh, larger issue. I, I do think a, a lot is lost. And political cartooning as I tried to say, sometimes it may have been as important in informing and shaping public opinion as as uh, people pontificating in editorials, uh, uh, eye catching, usually a little humorous, or you know something that uh, might appeal to uh, people who wouldn't take time to read a, a long column. And uh, so I wanted to, in, in part, pay tribute to one remarkable uh, talent. Uh, uh, I've got a wall at home of dozens and dozens of cartoons that were drawn, which I appeared, and he's probably the—he was probably the author of half or more of them, almost because, certainly. And um, uh, so that—that's what it was really about. And uh, I tell you, I got lots and lots of feedback from all over the country. I'm not the only person who regrets that uh, this this art form and this. It legitimate, significant part of our national de- dialogue debates is pretty much gone, and uh, and and that the newspapers that 
that carried them are, are uh, no longer the factor they were. Gary Varvel is an interesting case uh, because, uh, as you as you correctly say, someone who was an editorial cartoonist in Indianapolis for a long time, and this is another notable thing about some of these editorial cartoonists is they tend to work not always at the huge, huge papers, but indeed at some of the smaller but still important regional newspapers like the Indianapolis Star, like the papers in Dayton or Columbus or mm-hmm. someplace like that. Um, and Varvel's an interesting case because he did it for a long time. And, and one of the reasons for his departure was he was criticized for a cartoon that he wrote around the time of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings where people saw his cartoon as mocking the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused now Justice Kavanaugh of sexual assault when they were both in high school. And even the Indie Star editor said, we could have done better. We probably shouldn't have run this cartoon. And it got me to thinking about Gary Varvel as archetype. I mean, here's a guy who's like a lot of these editorial cartoonists, older white guys, because we're not really breeding editorial cartoonists anymore. People are not getting into the field. Do you think it's a it's a it's an example of a place that hasn't diversified as the country has and brought with it the diverse opinions uh, at all? No. Uh, you know, the vast majority of the cartoonists still active or who were active over the last 10 or 20 years would fairly be characterized as, as of a more liberal persuasion. It, Varvel was the diversity. Oh, no, no, saying nothing, he, of, saying know, nothing about political yeah. bent, but just, you know, well, a bunch of old white guys. No, nah, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the the cartoon, I guess I remember that, but, you know, if, if that's what the cartoon said, there's cast some doubt, then he's right. That testimony was discredited. Well, I, I think it was more about m- making fun of allegations of sexual assault is how I it see. was perceived. Okay. I, um, I don't know. You know, the... Uh, if you drew cartoons for a living, you probably rarely drew one that somebody didn't take exception to. That was to provoke and be thought provoking uh, was is really what they were there for. And uh, and so um, whether it was a a, a Herblock, uh, you know, very uh, strongly uh, con- uh, convinced uh, liberal on the other side, I enjoyed his cartoons because they were clever and sometimes they give you a new thought you hadn't had. I, I, and I think uh, Varvel was a, an example, sort of a different point of view. One of the reasons that's been cited by newspapers, uh, and, and some of this probably has to do with consolidation too, but one of the reasons that's been cited for getting rid of editorial cartoons, getting rid of editorial columns, editorial boards that will write things in the paper is in this era where it is possible to scream fake news at the top of one's lungs and make that some sort of attack somehow on the news media, fair or not, the argument that some have said is, well, if we can take away the editorial side of this, where we are appearing to have an opinion and, and people don't, papers don't even do political endorsements, which used to be a, a mm. longtime standard bearer, then we can we can get rid of that idea that we are taking a, a side on an issue or one on, a, on one side or the other. Do you think that's a, a reasonable claim or is it, you know, we got to we got to save payroll somewhere? I think it was a healthier era when they did take positions and they took them on the editorial page. The problem I see all the time now are people taking blatantly editorial positions on what purports to be a news page and and presenting opinion as though it were uh, incontrovertible fact, which sometimes it isn't. You know, it's a 
an opinion, maybe a well-founded opinion or well-grounded opinion, but... Uh, I suppose it's fair to note here that we've had papers that have been partisan newspapers since time immemorial, and we've probably come closer to the center now than we've just about I ever think that's, been. I think that's a good point. I, uh, well, I don't know about now, but o- over the last several decades, I think we probably did move from the yellow journalism era into a somewhat more responsible time, and um, so... Um, I, uh, I, I do think that, for the moment at least, we uh, haven't replaced some of the quality, some of the objectivity, that, uh, some of the balance that at least the best newspapers uh, once, once provided. Maybe uh, over time, uh, you know, there's a lot of people concerned about um, untrustworthy information coming in. Maybe over time, uh, the market will call into being new agencies, new sources, which are able to establish a position as a place you, where you really can rely on the, this, on the validity of what you're re- hearing or reading, uh, where somebody has checked it and done, it, done that without some naked bias. You know, uh, I think there'd still be a market for that. I'd subscribe. Certainly Probably. the vetting is very important. Yeah. Another article you wrote recently was uh, one saying that the Democratic Party, uh, in your words, needs its own Richard Nixon. That's an interesting archetype to create in one's head. How did you come up with it? Well, if you read the article, you know, I first of all, it's not that the party needs it. I think the nation could use. And you, and you were careful to say not the crook part of Richard oh, Nixon. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, you write these things. You'd like people to read them. So if you can think of some sardonic way to get started might catch somebody's attention. But the, you know, the, the point I was making was that um, I'm very preoccupied, you know this, with what I believe is a, the single biggest domestic uh, challenge we're facing. We're piling up incredible debts that cannot be paid. We're making promises that cannot be kept. This is fiscally, I think, um, uh, irresponsible of public officials, both parties, have have uh, contributed to it. It's economically incredibly dangerous. Read history. You know, this time is never different. You can't borrow without limit without paying a real price. And using a word that people should be careful how they use, it's immoral. It is not right to spend to borrow money today, spend it on today, on on today's older generations generally. We spend vastly more per older person or for uh, or for adult on adults than we do on young, on on the young in this country and um, uh, and then hand the bill to those younger people as they as they as they grow up and so um, I was just making the point uh, kind of clinically that I don't think as we are currently configured politically a Republican any Republican can deal with it because the minute these issues, however legitimate, however clear the facts, somebody tries to raise them, they get smeared and trashed with these cliches. And and I, I pointed out Paul Ryan made some fairly sensible suggestions about how you might keep Medicare from going bust. And people immediately ran out and made a commercial in which literally he's shown pushing an elderly person in a wheelchair off a cliff. Now, that's the nature of our political debate around these programs. Which, which are the whole source of the, the big source of the debt problem. So, um, but a Democrat, the, 
the right Democrat, and then we that it may be it would be years before such a person might emerge, but would have the field position to do this because uh, they would they would arrive with a different stereotype and their fidelity and belief in the um, in the uh, so-called entitlement programs would be taken for granted. And beyond and beyond that, I tried to point out they'll have some other motives for doing this. We don't get our hands on this. First of all, that nobody's going to suffer worse than low-income, vulnerable people. Secondly, um, as these things get more and more out of control, they are squeezing the life out of programs that Democrats sincerely believe in. Um, you know, domestic programs of various kinds, and so. Um, I'm just fantasizing, I suppose, but imagining that the day might come when when uh, someone who wanted to uh, uh, do something really important, leave a place in history, uh, was willing to uh, uh, use the uh, field position they had politically um, in ways that Nixon used to do. I mean, Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. Nixon went to China. We all remember he did things you know, that were sort of... Uh, um, uh, counter to expectations. Well, uh, I, 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 I suppose that there's there is plenty of precedent for presidents doing things counter to uh, to expectations. Our current one did visit North Korea, after all. But let me let me go back to yeah. some of the language in your editorial. Yeah. Um, as you might imagine, there were some commenters who were not at all kind to you. And I'll tell you what I tell everybody: don't read the comments, no matter no matter what. No, you've don't written. worry. I don't worry. Anybody <laughs> other wants to comment, I will never see it. I don't. And and I'm not going to rehash those comments, except to say. The discussion became pretty partisan there, and, and you took a couple of partisan jabs, to be fair, too. You said the latest Democratic policy fads or the discretionary government most dear to Democrats. So, so here's my question. You sniped a little bit. They sniped back at you. Why be snarky when you could try to just win people over with, hey, wouldn't it all be better if? I, I reject the term. I don't think that's what I was You don't I think you were all. snarky in the article? No, I don't. I don't. I think that, uh, and by the way... I got at least as much from what I understand. Again, I don't read these things. I'm just trying to get people to think uh, in about maybe subjects they haven't before. Um, I got—I bet I got more from the other direction who thought that I, you know, my—I was plainly not—I uh, was not praising the current president at all. You certainly I, were not. I mean, it was sort of on on both your houses, kind of an assessment. I agree with that. You know, Walter Cronkite. You remember Walter Cronkite? I do. Most of your listeners probably do. He used to say if his mail weighed pretty much the same on both sides of the scale, he felt like he was doing his job. And I, and I was going to present it to you exactly that way. That is mm-hmm. certainly something that we, we in, in journalism say. But you know, one of the things no, I think you have to be, and you know, people are entitled to be you know, passionate partisans if they want, but you had to be one to read that as a partisan statement. It's a clinical statement. We have a huge national problem. If you don't, uh, if you aren't worried about it, if you don't care about the, if this doesn't bother you about the country's future, I think you need to think harder about it. And the question is, how's it going to get solved? And I do believe that's all I'm saying that some imaginary person who comes with a democratic pedigree sometime in the future would be in the best best position to solve it. That's I guess all what, I said. I guess what I'm saying is, you have this this bully pulpit being who you are. You've got a, a big, you've got a name. You've got a big national platform, both in the paper and in your current role, where where you are looked to for advice on a bunch of things. Is there a way that you could use that to say, look, yes, you're both at fault. However. 
guys, we got to get past this. We can't take jabs at one another. We have to say, yes, we've both screwed up. Now let's fix the damn I say thing. it all the time. Listen, if I got a few more people to remember that we're doing something very, very dangerous um, that, that are, uh, with regard to the debts we're piling up, that we're going to have to do something very different, and I hope in time, before, before there's a, uh, really a tragic uh, catastrophe that hurts a lot of people, then, uh, then it was worth taking the time to write the little sketch. Back to campus, uh, I've been thinking about uh, your plan to, as you put it here and elsewhere, spread the peanut butter evenly when it comes to pay raises and trying to avoid that. Um, uh, I've asked you in the past, and, and previously you hadn't had any numbers, but you told me before the show you're maybe getting some numbers in now mm-hmm. about how bosses at the university are actually doing following your mandate to do that. Mm-hmm. How are they doing? Uh, uh, pretty well. For, for remember, this is a brand new uh, system. Purdue has never had a system where employees, and I think it was way past time. Every employee ought to have an honest uh, uh, assessment on a regular basis, and ought to give, be given feedback about how you're doing well or where you could do better. And um, so uh, we had uh, uh, not a hundred percent, but close to, but a very very high percentage of our. Um, thousands of employees had that assessment. And um, uh, in general, not too bad. Now, I think we've got some learning to do as, as a, um, an organization for many, maybe most, of our people in management positions. This might have been the first time they were ever asked to make, a, in this case, a one-to-five assessment of how their employees were doing. I have to say, by the way, as somebody who had to do this myself, I think the new assessment is dramatically better than the previous model. So I, I, I commend thanks. you for, for we, making the new one better. Thanks. We got a lot of good, a lot of feedback about that. And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, with regard to the distribution, not surprising to me, uh, it, there was a, uh, it, it tilted to, to the right in the sense that there were um, a lot more fours and fives than ones and twos. But... Uh, the most common assessment was still a three. There was reasonable distribution, um, that is to say, on, when, when those assessments then were applied to pay raises. So you remember the, the pay raise, uh, the pool was 2.5%. And that was right, the average was came in right about there. But there were uh, increases running up to 8%. And then there were some who were not given an increase, Hopefully they were told this is a message you got to do better. Hopefully they were told here's some suggestions about how to improve next year. Obviously, if if a manager is put in a position like that, that's an uncomfortable conversation you're going to have to have with somebody who is one of your subordinates. Is there any training available to managers to be able to have those conversations in a constructive, non-confrontational way? Because it's just difficult to do on a human-to-human basis, and uh, it strikes me that there's probably a, a more right or more wrong way to have those conversations. Yeah, important question. I think the answer is yes, there was some. Uh, I think the, now, the lesson is we need to do some more, and uh, we will. But I, I would say a very good first start. I want to thank all the people who, who took part uh, as either managers or uh, associates who, were, who uh, took part in the conversation. Uh, and, um, you know, a, a really important message that I think we need to uh, send more clearly is three is a good score. Three is described as meets, meets expectations. expectations. So 
meets, exceeds, greatly exceeds, and then two and one were, you know, short of expectations. Um, um, that probably uh, needs to be uh, uh, more plain to more people. Three means you're really, you're doing a good job. You're doing a solid job here. Four and five should be reserved for people who really are clearly above the norm. But uh, uh, so I think we'll, uh, th- that's a good example of, of where we can probably uh, do uh, better training. And uh, maybe the next time around, the next time around, we'll, the distribution will reflect that a little bit more. But uh, uh, all in all, I, I think a, a great first start, definitely a, a fairer system and a, and a big improvement over where we were. All right. Well, as always, we run out of time before I run out of things on the paper. So the good news is I'll have things for you next month at the same time. I, I can't wait. All right. <laughs> this has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Send your questions for the show to ask at wbaa.org. And be sure to thank your local public radio station for airing this program. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.